Well, welcome to Christ Community Church this morning. We are so glad you could be with us this morning. It's great to have you here to worship together and open God's Word. We have so much to be grateful for. Even in this season of COVID-19 and quarantine, there's so much to be grateful for. God has given us so much as a church body and as individuals. And we want to take a moment to stop and, and praise God and give thanks to Him for all that He has given to us. In fact, sometimes during a season like this, it's actually even easier to give thanks to God for things, things that we've taken for granted for so long. We start to realize how important they are and how gracious God has been to us all along. One of the things that I'm really grateful for is the gathering of the saints. And I'm really looking forward to in several weeks of meeting together once again in community to worship together. And if you've ever joined us here for church at Christ Community Church, you'll know that one of the things we do every single week is that we get into God's Word. We open up the Bible, we take a look at the Bible, we see what it says, and we want to know what God is telling us through Scripture. I'm really grateful for Scripture. How wonderful it is that God has given to us a book that we can learn more about Him. You know, God reveals Himself in Scripture. He reveals Himself to us in Scripture. He reveals who He is, who we are, and how can we, we can relate to Him. And they, those are really important things if we're going to have a relationship with God. We have to know who He is. We have to know who we are. And we have to know how He wants us to relate to Him if we're going to have a relationship with our God. And so we have every reason to be grateful for Scripture, to open it up, to read it, to take a look at what it says, to study it together so that we can know our God. Now, over the last several weeks, you may have been getting to know the people that you've been living with a little bit better. You may have been stuck in a, in a home with people that you're not normally around 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Some of you are, are starting to find out maybe what your kids are actually like when they're at school. Uh, and that may be somewhat of a shock. Others of us may be figuring out what our spouses are like for the first time. You know, they have different personalities when they go to work or when they're home all day than what we typically see of them uh, when we're not together all of the time. Everybody has little tricks and, and, and quirks that uh, uh, suddenly we become aware of when we begin spending more and more time with them. Well, getting to know the people that you're want to be in relationship with is essential if you want to have a healthy and strong relationship with them. And it's God's Word that allows us to know what God is like so that we can have a relationship with Him. Now, if you've been joining us over the last several months, we have learned a great deal about what kind of God we worship in the book of Genesis. We've learned that He is the creator of everything. Nothing made God create. Nothing forced his hand. Nothing made him create the world. He created it freely, and he created it graciously. One of the most important features of God, or his, one of his most important attributes, is his graciousness. And his act to create the world was a gracious act. His act to create mankind as part of that world was a gracious act. And he has always been gracious Towards us. In Acts chapter 17, the Apostle Paul says it this way. He says in verse 24, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, 
does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands. We don't give him anything. We can't give God anything. He, we, we can't serve him in any way that he needs to be served. He goes on to say, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. You see, God's dealing with mankind from the beginning has always been a gracious dealing. He has always dealt graciously with his people. And when he made Adam and Eve the, the first couple and he put them in the garden, he gave them everything that they had and everything that they needed. He provided for all their needs. He gave them a purpose to, to cultivate the garden. They were to be his uh, stewards over the creation that he had made. They were to, to, to work the garden and to make it grow. They were given a purpose to take dominion over the world that God had created. He provided for their physical needs. He gave them food to eat. The trees in that garden produced fruit that they could eat and sustain themselves. He provided them with companionship. He provided them with each other. Eve was, was God's great gift to Adam to be his helper, to be his partner in his great purpose of working the garden. And even more importantly, God provided himself. In the cool of the morning, God would come into the garden and walk with Adam and Eve and live in communion with them. They had purpose, they had provision, they had companionship, and perhaps most importantly of all, they had significance. You see, God created an Adam and Eve to be his image bearers. They were to be God's representative here on earth. God graciously does all these things. Nothing forces God to provide any of this to Adam and Eve, but God graciously does it. But God is also, in addition to being a gracious creator God, he's also a just God. He's also a just God. And he gives to Adam and Eve a test. He tells them that if they remain obedient, if they follow his commands, if they do what he says, if they're actually his image bearers, then they'll live forever. They'll receive his grace forever. They'll receive all the blessings and all the benefits that God had provided forever. But if they disobey, if they eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, if they do what God told them not to do, then all of that grace will be taken away. You see, the, the option is put before them, life in obedience with God as his image bearer, or death. That's the choice. And it's at that point in the story that we learn something about ourselves, don't we? We learn that we are sinners. Like Adam and Eve, like our first parents in Adam and Eve, we are sinners because Adam and Eve disobeyed. They chose death. They chose death over life. And so God removes grace from them, and suffering enters the world. And I think it's really important for every Christian, for every person, to come to grips with what suffering is. Suffering is a loss of God's grace after just judgment. Suffering is always the loss of God's grace after just judgment. God judges Adam and Eve and their sin and their disobedience. 
and he gives them exactly what he said he would give them. He removes the grace from them. And we see in the, in the end of the story, we see that there's no more garden, that God casts them out of the garden. If there's no garden, there's no more purpose. Without the garden, provision is significantly diminished. And their significance, their ability to properly bear God's image is significantly diminished. They die. And nothing that dies can truly and fully bear God's image. God doesn't die. And so in all these things, we see that, that Adam and Eve suffer loss. They begin to lose the good things that God had given to them in grace. But God is still a gracious God. He doesn't change. God doesn't change, and He continues to give grace. Of course, life continues. Adam and Eve don't die right away. God continues to provide for them after the fall. He gives them coverings to cover them as He sends them out of the garden. They continue to bear children. Life goes on, and they continue to bear children for many, many generations, many sons and daughters. And as we've read over the past several weeks, civilization begins to grow on the earth. God continues to be a good and gracious God. Does man change? Surely you would think that after receiving this graciousness from God, man would suddenly become better, that he would start to live in gratitude towards God. But that doesn't happen. In fact, as we read in the story, the opposite happens. We read in Genesis 6, chapter 6, verses, verse 5, that God looks down on the earth and he sees this. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. You see, God's graciousness doesn't, at this point, produce in man a response of gratitude. Instead, as often happens when, when people are cut slack, when, when people are, 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 are not uh, held to accounts, their behavior only worsens. And here you see that with mankind, that as God has allowed them to continue, as He's continued to prosper them on the earth, as He's continued to provide for them, they only get worse until they've reached this point where all of the intentions of their thoughts and, and of their heart are only evil continually. They've gotten worse in light of God's grace. So God, again, doesn't change. He's a God of justice. Grace testing justice. Grace testing justice. And here, once again, as we've read over the past several weeks, He administers justice to a fallen mankind. And He administers that justice by once again removing His grace. You see, in grace He had created the world, and in justice He removes that grace and uncreates the world. And we see the floodwaters come, and they destroy all life on earth, except for one man and his family. You see, God is a God of grace. He doesn't change. And He continues 
to provide grace to Noah his, and his family. Now, once Noah is delivered, as we learned last week, once God causes the floodwaters to subside, to go down, once Noah has been delivered from the flood and exits the ark, we see something different that we haven't quite seen yet, at least not so clearly in the text. We see Noah do something different. And we read in verse 8, or chapter 8, verses 20 through 22, these words. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on an altar. You see, Noah builds an altar. He builds an altar. And he expresses on that altar, through sacrifice, gratitude towards God. We haven't seen something like that yet in Scripture. But here we see a clear example of Noah having been delivered from the flood, exiting the ark, and offering a sacrifice of gratitude to God. And we read this in the next verse. It says, And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. You see, God was pleased with Adam, or with Noah. He was pleased with Noah's gratitude. And Noah's gratitude, his gratitude for the recognition, recognition that God had saved him, results in reconciliation. There's reconciliation that occurs at that moment. You see, gratitude is a key to our reconciliation with God. But man does not change. We're still sinners. We've just read right here in those verses that God's promise here not to destroy the earth, not to strike down every living creature, is not because man has some kind somehow changed entirely. As a matter of fact, he says the opposite here. He says, for the intentions of man's heart is evil from his youth. Man has not changed, but God is still gracious. Because of, God's gratitude, because of Noah's gratitude here, his little small token of gratitude towards God, God is gracious towards him, and they are reconciled to one another. And that reconciliation obtains enormous benefits for the whole world. God, in his graciousness, graciously enters into a covenant with Noah. God enters into a covenant with Noah, and not just Noah, but with the whole world. And the whole world benefits in a profound way from Noah's small act of gratitude, of offering a sacrifice to God. It bears fruit for generation after generation. God is a God of covenants. Now, if you are unfamiliar with that term, it's an agreement based on unilateral promises. Now, many of you are probably familiar with contracts. And in most contracts, they are the result of, of two parties agreeing to do something if the other party does something. And so you can think of your, your typical, you know, 
financial transaction. You go to the ice cream shop. You you tell them you want the uh, chocolate, uh, you know, the chocolate chip, the double chocolate chip, and they they hand that to you only after you've given them the payment that you're supposed to make. And if you don't give them the payment, they're not going to give you the ice cream. And if you give them the ice cream or the payment, you expect them to give you the ice cream. You see, the, in a contract, the transaction is mutual. I will do this only if you do that. A covenant's different. A covenant involves unilateral promises from one person to another, from one party to the other. One of the great examples of covenants that most are familiar with is marriage. You know, marriage isn't a mere contract where the parties stand in front of the altar and say, you know what, as long as you remain beautiful, as long as you make enough money, as long as you treat me well, well, then I'll do the same for you. That is not how typical marriage vows go, and that's not how they should go. It's a covenant. It's a unilateral promise that I will be with you. I will love you forever and ever till death do us part, whether it's in good health or bad health, good times or bad times, till death do us part. And that is my promise to you regardless of your performance. That's a covenant. And God is a covenanting God. He enters graciously into a covenant with Noah, not based on Noah's performance, but based on His graciousness. God's covenants are always gracious. His covenants are always gracious. Let's look at this covenant together in Genesis chapter 9. We read this in Genesis chapter 9, verses 1 through 4. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heaven, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every morning, every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. So what's going on here? What is God doing in this, in this series of verses? Well, first, if you recall, when, when Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden, they lost their purpose, didn't they? They had been given this job, this role of tending God's garden of caring for God's guardian, of taking dominion over his creation. And when they were kicked out of that garden, they, they somewhat become just wandering nomads with little purpose. But God is restoring that purpose here. He's renewing those covenants, those promises that he gave to Adam in the garden. Man is to take dominion over the world into his possession, into his... Um, uh, government, all things are being given in the world. He's to be fruitful and multiply. He's to fill the world so that he can bear God's image in all parts of the world. God is blessing them so that they can fill the earth and be his image bearers once again. That's going to be their purpose, to take dominion 
over the world. He's restoring in grace the purpose that he gave to them. But one of my favorite parts of this whole passage is the provision part of it. You see, God provides for Adam and Eve. And I don't know about you, but I love food. And uh, I'm looking forward to very much, after the service today, going out and grabbing lunch. And I sincerely hope that somewhere out there, that lunch is going to include meat. And here we see in these passages that not only is God giving to Adam and Eve the fruit of the ground, the, the things that grow, He's also giving to them animals for their food. He's giving them things that live, that have the lifeblood in them for them to eat. Now, I think we all can be very grateful for God's provision to the whole world for this. You know, I think uh, we'd all agree that men's ministry would be impossible without bacon. You know, we just couldn't do it unless we had bacon to attract men to men's ministry events. I remember growing up uh, falling in love with seafood, and I still love seafood to this day. Uh, but I remember the story very specifically. You had your, your Sunday night movie special on ABC, and one Sunday in particular, it just so happened to be 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, the Jules Verne classic. And I remember watching that and being, you know, really taken by this submarine that could go so far down deep into the sea. And there's one scene in particular where Captain Nemo, the uh, captain of the Nautilus, takes his submarine down to the bottom of the ocean. And as he exits, he sends his divers out of the submarine to gather from the sea floor the bounty of the sea. And I remember watching this as a, as a young child and just being amazed as they went out and they gathered fish, they gathered, you know, shrimp and lobster and crabs and all the things that you can eat out of the ocean. And they brought them back into the ship and, and out in front of everybody, they laid this incredible banquet of seafood. And I remember watching that as a child and just thinking, that is amazing. And even to this day, I love seafood primarily from watching that show. And so reading this and knowing that God has provided all of these things for us to eat, whether it's a steak that you enjoy, whether it's bacon that you love, or whether it's seafood like I do, um, uh, this is one of the best passages in Scripture for those of us. We can be grateful for the meals that we eat uh, because of how God has provided for His people in this passage. It gives a new meaning hopefully to you, for saying grace over your meals. God has provided for you. He gives you that food. He has provided for you in this passage here today as part of his blessing to Noah. But God's not done. It's not just purpose and uh, provision that he provides to Noah and, and all of the earth. He also reaffirms to mankind our status as image bearer. He reaffirms that we are his image bearer. Now that's interesting, isn't it? it at, at some level, it's, it's, it's strange that God would do that to a creature that he has said over and over and over again, this creature does nothing but evil continually. That they're wicked, that they're sinful, that even in our sin, even though we do evil continually, even though our hearts are wrong, God restores 
mankind as his image bearer. And we read this in Genesis 9, verse 5. But you shall not, let's see here, and for your lifeblood I will require reckoning. For every beast I will require it, and for man. So what God is saying here is that if something kills a man, something kills a human being, that God is going to require a reckoning. Anything that kills human life is answerable to God, whether it's beast or whether it's another man. God is going to require the reckoning. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. So even if another person kills another person, God is going to be the one who requires the reckoning. You're going to have to answer to God for the killing of, of other humans. He says this in verse 6, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. You see, the basis for this intimidating warning that God gives to mankind is not that man in and of himself has all this value and worth, the basis for God's warning not to kill other people, not to kill your fellow man, your fellow woman, is that they bear his image. Even though we're sinful, even though we're broken image bearers, at some level, God has still said, you are significant. You are important. And an attack upon you is an attack upon me. And I will require a reckoning for that. God restores man's significance as his image bearer. Now, my point here is not to leave for today a discussion about whether our modern systems of criminal justice are that, if they are just or not. It's not to, to make an argument for or against whether our, the current way we practice capital punishment is a, is a good and just way to do it. We don't have time for that discussion here today. But what we need to see and what we must see is that killing of another human being is a capital offense that God takes seriously. And for that offense, he requires the life of the killer. And the reason why he does that is because man, even in his sin, is still God's image bearer. God has restored man's significance in his covenant with Noah. Now you would think, once again, that God's gracious covenant with Noah that we've seen so far, the blessing that he's given to Noah and his family and all of his descendants, you would think, once again, that this great covenant that we're reading about right now would have for all ages produced in mankind an incredible gratitude towards God. That mankind would have just in, in great, great gratitude for how God has treated him, how he's provided for us all of these years after all of these generations, how he's given us this special place here on this planet to, to take dominion over this world, you would think that there would be just an outpouring of gratitude towards God. But once again, just as God doesn't change, man has not changed. In Romans chapter 1, 
the Apostle Paul begins to allude to this covenant when he begins to describe what is really the problem that separates God from man. See, God talks, or Paul talks about in Romans chapter 1 that the wrath of God has been revealed against mankind. Why? Why is God angry? Why is he angry? Why is God angry and why is there separation from this God and for us? Well, he tells us right here in chapter 1, verse 21, he says this, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. You see, Moses and all of his family and everyone who comes after him, we know that there's a God. We know that there's a God who provides for us graciously. But we do not honor him, and we do not give thanks. There is no gratitude for the graciousness of our God. And that is the great sin that the Apostle Paul highlights for why there is separation between God and man, a lack of gratitude. And the result is profound. We continue reading. They did not give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for what? For images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Now, if you've been following along, you will just read that those things are the things that God has just given to men. And so what happens when we lose the gratitude that we should have towards God for His graciousness? What happens? We begin to worship the things He has given to us instead of the giver Himself. Idolatry happens. The exchange of God to whom we should be showing our gratitude to the things of this world that He has given to us that he has given us dominion over. And even worse, the use of image, that we exchange the immortal God for the image of things like birds, only reinforces the idea that we have made a mockery of God's image by worshiping the creation instead of the creator. Fortunately, very fortunately for us, God's promises his covenant is not based on our performance. This is so wonderful that this is not a contract, that this is a covenant. Because if it was based on our mutual performance here, well, God has definitely performed. He has not failed. But we have failed at every turn, and yet God will perform His covenant and we read here at, at the end of uh, this section here, these verses. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, for us, for all of us who are far off, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, every beast of the earth with you. As many came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. So God's promises here don't just apply to man. They apply to all of, of the creation. 
everything that man has been given dominion over. God is making his covenant with all of it. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be flood to destroy the earth. So God is promising at this point not. He, he is stopping the war. Even though man may continue in his rebellion, God is ending the war on his side. He's calling a truce. And no longer will he wipe out man with the waters of the flood. And then he reinforces this promise and he says, And God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations, including ours. I have set my bow in the clouds, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, This is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. These are remarkable passages of God's promise to us that no matter how bad things get, He is not, as He did in the days of Noah, going to destroy the world with a flood. That never again will he, will he cleanse the earth with the waters of the flood. And in this incredible passage, he gives this sign to Noah of how we know that God will always be faithful to that promise. I know when I'm driving around or when I'm outside after a good rain, I love looking for rainbows with my kids. I love when we're out on a walk and maybe there's a storm going off in the distance and we can look off in the distance and see the rainbow in the cloud. And we, we've come to associate rainbows with all kinds of different things, but in God's economy, in His symbolism, whenever we see that rainbow, as beautiful as it looks, there's also a terrible symbolism behind it, isn't there? Not only is this rainbow a sign of God's promise not to destroy the earth like he did at some point, but it's also described as God's bow. And we are talking about here a mighty weapon of war, God's bow that he uses to wage war against evil. This is God's weapon of war. Something that, that in some sense, for those of us who are sinners and who deserve judgment, we should be terrified of. But God has taken this mighty weapon of war and He has turned it into a sign of peace. God has made peace with His creation. And he's, it all started with an act of gratitude from Noah. You know, all of this that we've discussed here today is a shadow, a sign that points towards an even greater salvation in Christ Jesus. He secured the greater covenant. And he ratified it at the cross. You know, Noah was saved from a flood of water. But there's another flood coming that's not a flood of water. And the Bible describes it as a flood of God's wrath. 
And Christ saves us from that wrath. We're in rebellion. We're sinners. We have not all changed and suddenly become creatures who sing praises of gratitude to our God all of the time. We deserve to be judged. But God has saved us. He continues always to be a gracious God. He continues always to save His people. We are saved not by an ark of wood that floats on the water, but by the cross of Christ. It's fitting that just as God took His mighty bow, His weapon of war, and turned it into a sign of peace, that God would also take and implement a sign of execution as a, to become the sign of our salvation and the peace that He has made with us. In closing, let me read how the Apostle Paul puts it this way in Romans chapter 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Because of the cross and because we can place our faith in the work of Christ, we can be saved and have peace with God. We have life and everything good in this life, including our eternal life, because of the grace of God. And so let me ask you this as we close. Are you grateful? Are you grateful? It's an important question that each of us should ask ourselves every day. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your graciousness towards us. You have been gracious to us our whole lives. Everything we have received has been a gracious gift from you. We forget that so often. So often we take what you have given to us, and instead of using it for your purposes and your glory, we use it for ourselves. Instead of bearing your image, we bear our image. Lord, and we know when we think deeply about it, when we're honest about it, that we deserve justice. But you're a gracious God, and you forgive, and you restore, and you continue to be gracious to your people for generation after generation. It's not our place to hope, Lord, that we are going to change right now forever and for good. We know we're going to continue to sin. Lord, but I pray for our church, I pray for myself, and I pray for all those listening that in our clear moments, when we're thinking clearly, we will, be great, we will have great gratitude for all that you've done for us. In your name we pray. Amen.